are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Liz Sweetheart. Chief Product and Strategy Officer, Safe Kids AI. She serves on several boards, is a frequent author and speaker on mental wellness and mental health. In this episode, I speak with Liz about conscious leadership. Good morning, Liz. Good morning and good afternoon, good evening, <laughs> and I guess good night, depending <laughs> on where you are and, and when you're listening to this. Yeah, thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. I'm really grateful to you for making time. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and I am thrilled to get a chance to visit with you. So let's get started with the questions. Tell us something about your background, who's Liz and what is the journey she's come so far? Oh, okay. Wait, how long did you say we had? <laughs> <laughs> I remember it's a short one, yeah. That's actually a really beautiful question for me because I've spent a lot of time in therapy actually exploring that. As some people listening may know, if you did any sort of light internet stalking on me, I'm very public about my journey with mental health, specifically with depression and with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And one of the things that I had to do in therapy in the last several years is to really engage with the question of who am I? I got to a point in November of 2019 um, where I was suicidal. And it was in large measure because I really had no idea who I was. And I didn't have really any anchor points. As a result, I was completely unmoored. And so I have spent quite a bit of time in therapy and on my own trying to understand who am I? And here's what I've come to. I am a person who loves connection. I am someone who loves meeting new people. I am someone who loves bringing people together around a purpose, which is one of the reasons why I was excited to talk with you and to join the elephant in the room today. Because for me, I have found that I am a wanderer. I love to journey and explore an adventure. I am a thinker. I like to sit and think, and I like to engage with others. I like to connect other people. So that is who I am. And then there are things that I do. And the biggest lesson for me, I think, in all of this was separating who I am from what I do. My answer to who are you used to be essentially my name, rank, and serial number. It was my title. It was my job. And then when I realized maybe that was the wrong answer, then it was my other jobs. It wasn't my professional career. It was, oh, well, I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. And that actually still isn't who I am. Those are roles that I play and those are things that I do. So I am all of those things and more. But figuring out who I am began with what is it that motivates me? And then what do I feel is my purpose? And my purpose is to foster environments where human beings can flourish 
and bring people together in those environments where we can solve problems and we can be generative toward one another and the earth. Wow, that's such an incredibly beautiful answer. And this is such a profound question, actually. I did not realize it until I hit a roadblock a couple of years back. And I realized that we put so much of weightage on who we are on the job title that we have or the other roles that we perform. So if any of those are taken away from you, you can just be like, okay, I don't have an identity. And that's not really true. So I'm really grateful to you for explaining in detail to people that this is the way actually you need to separate who you are from what you do. Amazing. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So moving on. So you've had a very varied career, right? How and why did you embark on getting a PhD in organizational leadership? Did you always have an interest? So uh, that's such a kind way of saying, why can't you keep a job? Um, (laughs) So you're absolutely right. I am a polymath and a Renaissance woman. The challenge I found is that there are so many things that interest me. And there are a lot of things that I am very fortunate that I can do well. And so the challenge has been over the course of my life to allocate my time in line with the things that I believe are most valuable to myself and to others. I don't want to just do things because I can and I enjoy them. It's important to me that what I do provides meaning and value and support and care and kindness to others. So why did I go get a PhD? Well, it started based on the whole, why did I go get an MBA? So I grew up in New York City. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The bubble that I was in, I went to an excellent private all-girls school, and there were 30 women in my graduating class when we got to the 12th grade. And the only other people that I found who've had similar experiences to having such small high school graduating classes have been from incredibly rural parts in the U.S. So I realized that I needed to do something pretty drastic if I was going to get out of the bubble that I was in. And so I picked Rice University and I moved to Houston, Texas. So while I was at Rice, I studied a whole variety of different things. And I somehow talked my way into my first job, which was in international tax. And over the course of my career, I ended up needing to go and get an advanced degree. They said, you got to go get yourself a credential. And one of the options was going to get an MBA. So I went and got an MBA. And I promise this is going to answer your question. I started that in 2005. Well, I was working on my MBA part-time while I was working at the same time. And one of the professors I had, a brilliant man, he's a psychologist, an exceptional executive coach, and he's just published a second book on executive coaching. He taught my organizational behavior course, and I'd never taken a psychology class before. I didn't know anything about organizational behavior. And in this class, it started to answer all these questions I had about even the work that I had been doing. And I just loved it. And at that point, so that was 2006. Fast forward to 2018. So this has been sticking with me this entire time. I keep dancing around this whole area, this whole piece of psychology that touches on leadership, organizations, and groups of human beings. 
And I finally just got to a point where I went, you know, I want to do and be something different professionally than what I'm doing right now. And so I went and pursued the PhD and it was marvelous. I loved it. And it was a great experience because I think I was also at the point in my life where the pieces came together. There's a proverb, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And that seems to be a theme in my life. That's amazing. So the world today is in a constant state of flux. And leadership, as we knew it, has changed drastically, right? In scope, what is expected from leaders, what is acceptable for leaders to be, how they should behave. What are the imperatives for leaders to lead differently in today's world, to be different? Because there are still a lot of them who are grappling with this whole issue. Yes. And I think that's another question of, oh my goodness, how much time do we have? <laughs> so, I think one of the things that's important when we frame these conversations is to first kind of define our terms. Leaders are people who lead and how they lead is the practice of leadership. And what I have seen frequently is a sort of conflation of the two. I've heard people describe, especially in corporate settings, well, that's what leadership wants to do. And what they really mean is that's what the leaders want to do. That's what the people in charge want to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're actively practicing leadership. So when I think about the question of what's changing in the world, what do leaders have to do to lead differently? How is the practice of leadership evolved? I am a firm believer in nothing new under the sun. So I think the world has always been in a state of flux. I think leaders have always been challenged with ongoing change. I don't think any of that is new or different. I do think that what we have now is essentially the fourth industrial revolution, right? We have, and I'm just going to use 5G as a proxy, but essentially what we have is the ability to transmit incredible volumes of data at incredible speed. And so I think that what has happened is that the perception of the pace of change has changed because we have more information than we did before. And that information is delivered without filters. And then that information is also delivered with different lenses. So when I say it's not delivered with filters, I'm not talking about how you receive information from, say, a news agency and it's through their particular lens. What I mean is that volumes of data are simply available. And then it is up to leaders to parse this data and to make meaning from it. And so the ongoing human struggle of meaning making, I think, has become much more challenging, particularly for those in positions where they are practicing leadership. So I think leaders are, one, grappling with all of the information that's available, instantaneous feedback, which again, is a relatively new phenomenon in the grand scheme of things because we haven't had telecommunications capabilities as we do now. We did not have social media the way that we do now. There has always been a form of media. There's always been a form of human beings being social. But the way that it's come together now with technology is particularly challenging. So I think that leaders are at a place where the expectations have ratcheted up they're more aware of the expectations than they may have been before. The ability of stakeholders to communicate those expectations and to do so loudly and broadly 
is all new and different. So to me, the great challenge of leadership right now is actually one of information and communication because the tenets of leadership, when I think about what leadership means, we get to kind of more of the theoretical level. It's actually, it's almost static. What to me is different is the environment in which it's being practiced. Absolutely. The world has always been in a state of flux. I think, like you mentioned, there is more scrutiny, there is accountability. And I think leaders also have a lot of data at their fingertips now. So they know who thinks what and how they need to respond to it, perhaps. How important is it today for leaders to be authentic? And what does authentic look like? Is authenticity an overused word? Yes. So let me start with the last one first. I think that there are certain words that sound inspiring and important. And so we use them excessively without necessarily ever defining what we're talking about, kind of going back to the whole question of leaders versus leadership. When I think about authentic leadership as a subject area, and we think about that sort of in the firmament of leadership theory. Now, leaders in leadership have been around for millennia, but we've only really dug into this idea of are there different flavors or different types or different practices of leadership? You know, what are the different types of leaders? How does their personalities, all of that stuff is really only something that's come about since the mid-1800s. So kind of the first theory of leadership that was put forward in sort of an academic or theoretical context was actually Carlyle in 1841 and was the idea of the great man theory. And that was the idea that throughout history were sort of ordained, appointed, divinely inspired to be leaders and to lead the people and basically tell other people what to do. And then this view over the next couple hundred years has evolved. And it really started with this view, which is a fancy way of saying that it started with this idea that leadership is about individuals. It's about individual leaders. And really, it's been in the last 50 years. The view has evolved to understand and appreciate what's known as relational leadership or a view of leadership as being less about the individual leader and more about the relationship between leaders and followers and with followers among each other. And within this relational view, that's where you start to get concepts like authentic or charismatic leadership. Because for authentic leadership to be practiced, you really are depending upon followers to perceive the authenticity of the leader. And one of the challenges, I think, is that we continuously present the idea of leadership as being all about the leader. So we talk about leadership development, but we're not actually developing the practice of leadership. We're talking about helping individuals to be different or potentially better versions of themselves. So what happens, I think, is that we get into this idea that, oh, well, this person is really like this person is authentic. And we tell leaders, you have to be authentic. But the thing about authenticity is you don't get to decide it for yourself. So I can go and be me and I can just present me to the world but it is the determination of another person as to whether they perceive me to be authentic, genuine, and a true reflection of who they understand me to be and who they believe I understand me to be. 
So I think one of the challenges is that you can't go to a group of people and say, I'm an authentic leader. You can't. Like, that's a determination that you don't get to make. And so I think we have this sort of challenge in how we present leaders and leadership that we sort of tell people, you have to be this thing. And the thing is, you don't actually get to decide if that's what you are. I think that what we want to inspire leaders to do is to eliminate as much of the gap between who they know themselves to be and how they present themselves to the world, to narrow that gap. And it's also what speaks to, you know, the basis of social power. I mean, and those first and partially best articulated by French and Raven, who talked about this idea of referent power, which is where an individual has power because other people see, revere, and want to essentially refer to them as the standard. So referent power is, I see you, and you are someone who I want to emulate and be like. And that becomes the base of your social power. And I think in leadership, that's the secret sauce, is when it's not that you have power, you are able to practice leadership because you can give people rewards or you can coerce them or even that you were elected or appointed or even that you have knowledge denied to others. It's that people see you and go, I want that. And that's what compels the followership. But I think that's where the authenticity piece comes in. Thank you for deconstructing that. That's like quite a revelation to me. And I think I've learned so much just now about how we present and how we speak about authenticity all the time. So it's more about how other people see you and whether they see you as authentic. You cannot just decide that you are authentic. You have written about conscious leadership. What does it mean? Oh, another really good one. Okay, so here's the fun thing about anything in the leadership realm. There are so many different definitions because essentially there's not a lot of standardization in all of the terms. Even leadership itself, when I was writing my dissertation, I think that was one of the first things that really caught me was that there's actually no universally agreed definition of leadership. You could go to the dictionary, but that definition itself is hotly disputed and essentially self-referential as well. So what I would say about how do we define terms when we talk about leadership, I think the most important thing is to be clear about what you are speaking about in that moment. So I want to acknowledge that there is quite a bit of valuable scholarship around the idea of conscious leadership as in raising consciousness. And it's tied to things like mindfulness and awareness. And that is valuable. When I talk about conscious leadership in the course that I've had an opportunity to lead with David Reed, what we're talking about is leaders who are conscious of the world around them. And they're conscious of the often conflicting and frequently complex landscape in which they are trying to lead others. And so our definition of conscious leadership is leaders who are conscious of self, so they're self-aware. They're conscious of others and environment. So they are situationally aware. And then they have developed a degree of emotional intelligence and self-regulation 
that allows them to bring together their self and situational awareness to strengthen their community. And our focus on this is to help leaders to be able to act in ways that help those in their communities who are often the most vulnerable. So it's really a question of how do we help business leaders to gain in their own self and situational awareness such that not only are they able to lead in business, but they're also able to strengthen their communities. Clearly, self-awareness is a big challenge with leaders, is it not? Uh, yeah, with all of us, I would say, <laughs> even yeah. followers. And we all lead and we all follow. Yes, self-awareness is a challenge. So you've spoken about conscious leadership. And the next question is about moral leadership. So what is moral leadership? How is it different? And is moral and ethical leadership the same? And what are the moral ethical challenges that leaders face? All right. So 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 we both agree that's that's a stacked question right there. Okay. So let me start with this. So the goal of the three-part course that David and I have been leading on conscious leadership, it has been built largely around my doctoral work, actually, which is where you kind of bring up the point of the moral integrator and ethical leadership. So when we think about what is ethical leadership, there has been kind of an established definition, at least in the academic literature, since, oh gosh, like the middle 2000s. I think that the definitive article that was written was Brown, Harrison, and Trevino in 2005. And they described ethical leadership as leadership practiced by leaders who were both moral persons meaning that they themselves acted ethically and responsibly, and moral managers, meaning that they role modeled for others how to behave in an ethical and moral fashion, and that then they used their power to inspire or compel others to do the same. And they were able to bring about change in their organizations as a result of their actions. And so over time, this idea of ethical leadership has evolved. Emile Captain in 2019 wrote a paper that added this idea of the moral entrepreneur, meaning that leaders, particularly leaders in business, are in a position to innovate new ethical norms in society. And so you can sort of think about it outbound. So the idea of the moral person and the moral manager, those are really taking place within an organization. The moral entrepreneur is outbound. And what my work looked at and sort of the dimension that I added was this idea of the moral integrator. And I think that we're seeing leaders, particularly leaders in business and certainly leaders in government being put into this position now, where it's not enough for them to be moral people and moral managers within their organizations. It's not even enough for them to innovate new ethical norms in society, which you'll see with companies that are taking action, for example, on climate change, leaders who are making the environment central to their leadership, where they're using, for example, the focus that we've seen coming out really of the UN Sustainable Development Goals around what we call ESG, right? Environmental, social, and governance. And what we're seeing there is leaders who are now innovating these new ethical norms in society as a result of their position. But what we're also seeing is the rise of stakeholders holding leaders and their organizations accountable 
for the statements of values and purpose and ethics that they make. So companies now have stated purpose and values. And what we're seeing is that stakeholders are increasingly holding leaders accountable and demanding action when they perceive that the behaviors of these leaders in their organizations are out of line with what they have stated are their organizational purpose and values. And so leaders, particularly in corporate spaces, have been finding themselves caught in a strange middle place where there is a demand from society, an expectation. You said it earlier, there is an expectation that leaders will act in moral and ethical ways that are generative and beneficial to society. And there is also still an expectation that leaders, again, in corporate spaces, will deliver returns for investors. And so there's this interesting tension that is often perceived between this idea of fiduciary responsibility, where corporate leaders have a responsibility to produce returns for shareholders, and the obligation that's often perceived in society by other stakeholders that organizations act in ethical and just ways in line with the purpose and values that they've set out. So where I I think we're seeing this tension now is as we evolve past this idea of sort of shareholder primacy and we move into a broader understanding of the role of business, the role of government, the role of society um, in society. So it's putting a lot of pressure on leaders. That's very interesting. Um, There was a report that I read, I think, sometime last year on DEI, on race, the work that organizations are doing. So all the time we are talking about making a business case with leaders, with the C-suite so that they take it on. But the survey showed that almost 60 to 70 percent of the CEOs or the C-suite wanted to do things because of their own personal beliefs and not because of the business case. It's their moral compass or their values that they have. Is there an inherent contradiction between moral leadership and capitalism? Because capitalism is about the need for businesses to make profit. And this is the way of the world. This is the world that we've been living in for the last many decades now. So I love where this is going. And what's interesting to me is that this is why I went and got the degree in how I spent most of my career, working with multinationals to help them identify how they should allocate income and expense in line with the perceived creation of value between their related parties. And that's hopefully a simple way of saying that in large organizations, you have different parts of the business doing different things. So some will manufacture, some will distribute, some will provide corporate services. And in a multinational, you have that all taking place in different parts of the world. And what I found really fascinating about this, and here's kind of how it all comes together, is when we think about this idea of how does ethical leadership and how do leaders, especially in business, act as these moral integrators, being able to negotiate between these seemingly opposing views where they need to provide returns to shareholders, they need to act on the stated purpose and values of the organization in line with stakeholder expectations. And they themselves 
have to believe in what they're doing. Again, as you said, we have a lot of leaders who have in this survey reported, we want to do what's right for us because, uh, I mean, it's true that one of the fastest ways to burn out is to do what you believe is wrong for money. So we have leaders who want to do the right thing because of what they believe to be the right thing with the tension of what stakeholders believe is their obligation based on the stated purpose and values of their organizations up against what is the return that they need to provide to stakeholders. And when we talk about this in terms of capitalism, right? So what's happened is that we have put leaders in a position, business leaders, in a position where they have to manage this tension between a very short-term view and work that really requires a far longer-term strategy. So when you see this tension pop up, it's really because we've had this view that we have to demonstrate this return to shareholders. If we don't, every 90 days, the stock price dips, what we're seeing, and the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, made a really big push toward this. They actually sort of flipped the narrative. And where I think that leads into this whole question of leadership is how is the view in the world changing around who it is, again, when the music stops, who it is that deserves these returns. And so I think leaders are being pressed to negotiate between this evolving view of shareholder capitalism, this evolving view of stakeholder capitalism. I've heard compassionate capitalism, but essentially what's happening is greater pressure is being put on leaders to negotiate between seemingly competing groups. And ultimately, I would argue that the competition in between those groups is largely misplaced. Really, I think that what we should be working toward is abundance and the benefit of humanity and society. But again, the tension becomes that the historical model has been to reward only a specific few, a very select few. And I don't think that that is holding up well globally as a viewpoint anymore. I think that the idea that there are only a few who reap the rewards of the work of the many, I think that that's under a lot of challenge and under a lot of pressure. Yeah, as the inequalities in the world grow, I think, especially during COVID, we've seen that those who were wealthy have become wealthier and those who are poor have become poorer. So during COVID, we saw that female leaders Angela Merkel, Jacinda Ardern, they were commended for their leadership style and how they handled the pandemic. Do women have different leadership styles to men? Or is it just the two of them were better people or they had a moral compass? Are there any lessons to be learned from them? So it's a big one to unpack. I think we need to be really clear about if we're talking about female versus male leadership and we're talking about it in essentially a gender constructed way, I mean, gender is a social construct. Absolutely. So what I would say is that what we're seeing are leadership styles that are influenced by the way that people's identities have been constructed by themselves and also constructed by society. So again, this whole idea of a female leader, there's also something deeply patriarchal about it because, I mean, the patriarchy is obviously what gives us um, well, female president versus president. 
Yeah. Um, the standard being president, therefore your automatic association is that it's male. It's also the same thing that gives us the reverse problem, which is the idea of the male nurse. We don't just say nurse and then let it be whoever the person is. There's a gendered component to it. So I think that there's a whole lot of things at play. What I think we see is that these two women have identified leadership styles. This actually goes right back to what you're saying earlier. I think what makes their leadership styles and them as the leaders so successful is that the gap that we perceive between who they are and who they present to the world, there's not a lot of daylight there. And so I think this comes back to this idea of authenticity in leadership. It comes back to this idea of relating in leadership. It's all about the relationship. It's not about the individual. And I think what's been interesting in particular about the two leaders you mentioned is that their leadership styles have largely revolved around their sort of what you see is what you get. There is not a lot of presented artifice. There does not appear to be a lot of facade. And I think that means for followers, for people who are revering these leaders, that they believe that they can trust them. And I mean, trust is a really interesting one. The word gets thrown around a lot, but trust is ultimately a transactional concept. The idea of trust and the whole idea of building up trust and losing trust. Trust is transactional in that you gain trust by performing to expectations over time. So I can build trust with you because I have seen you follow through on the expectations that you've set for your own performance. You've said you would do something, you've done it, and then you repeat that over a period of time. And what builds up is this sort of account that you can then use as collateral for when you're going to do something that I haven't seen you do before. So essentially, it collateralizes the transaction where... I believe that you will come through, even though I've never seen you do this thing before, but I believe that you will because you have demonstrated up to this point that you perform to the expectations that I have. Now, when you don't, that collateral gets cashed in and you have to rebuild it. And the thing is, you build it in quarters, you have to rebuild it in pennies. That's why it feels like it takes longer. That's why it feels like it's really hard to rebuild trust because it takes more demonstrations of your trustworthiness in order to rebuild it. So where I think these leaders have been successful is that they have performed against expectations consistently. And then when they have had to go above and beyond what they had done previously, and the pandemic certainly required a lot of above and beyond because they were able to come through, because they were able to fulfill the expectations that they'd set, that I think gave people a greater sense of trust in them, but also I think helped to underscore this idea that they were who they said they were. Their behavior essentially became more predictable. Human beings really like predictability. There are a few things that make us more nervous than uncertainty, which makes living in the world a challenge, obviously. But we look for ways to limit uncertainty. We look for ways to limit complexity. We love binary choices. Frankly, we love not even having to make a choice, which is why a lot of folks like will make a choice by not making a choice. So I think in these cases, it has less to do necessarily in the leadership aspect with the social construct of gender. But I think what happens is society then puts these lenses onto people and says, oh, 
your authenticity is a result of, of your being a woman. Your authenticity is a result of this particular set of understandings we have as to what it means to be female in society. So I think that's where you kind of get a bunch of the sort of overlap. But again, I think it really comes down to this question of how much daylight is there between who you present yourself to the world to be and who you know yourself to be and who other people perceive you to be. Yeah, and it comes back to authenticity. So what is the definition of good leadership and what are the attributes of good leaders? Ooh, all right. The challenge is that when you say good leadership, the practice of leadership that is effective may not necessarily yield results that one would perceive to be good or even moral or ethical. So it is possible to be an effective leader and a really horrific human being who does really terrible things. The effective practice of leadership is one where the leader is able to either through, generally speaking, through a combination of being both transactional and transformational, help individuals, followers, to achieve more than they could individually. So there's this idea that leadership is somewhat transactional and transactional gets such a bad rap. I mean, it, yeah. we use transactional, it's like a pejorative. It isn't. The basis of human interaction is social exchange, which in and of itself is transactional. But essentially, leaders can inspire or compel followers to behave, right? By doing something, they either create an obligation or they create an inspiration for others to act. And then... There's this idea of transformational leadership, whereby a leader so empowers others that they are able to together achieve results that they believed were out of reach entirely. So I think effective leadership combines these aspects to help a group followers and the leader together, but to help a group of people to achieve greater things than they could if they were acting individually or to achieve something, period, that none of them would be able to do on their own, but galvanizes them to do that. Where I think that effective leaders come in is that effective leaders are sustainable. They do not put themselves in a position where practicing leadership leads them to not be functional as people. And we see this all the time. We see people burn out. And again, it's because how they're practicing leadership is not sustainable for them personally. So I think what we want to see is leaders who are able to be as transparent, um, I say it again, authentic, but who are able to behave in ways that allow others to see as little a gap as possible between who they purport to be and how they behave. And I think from a leadership perspective, what we want to see is leaders empowering those around them to achieve truly extraordinary things that otherwise might be out of reach. This has been such a learning for me, but I want to ask you one more, and this is nothing to do with leadership, but just to do with... The people who inspire you, who are they? People who inspire me, who inspires me? 
That's a pretty powerful question. Who inspires me? I struggle with it all the time, actually. And I've noticed over the past couple of days that other people also do struggle with the question. And we talk about role models and people we look up to. And yeah. Ah, my goodness. I think I challenge is that I am inspired daily. So the list is incredibly long. Who am I inspired by these days? So I'm inspired by, well, every day I'm inspired by my kids. My daughters inspire me because I love watching them learn and watching them develop. And they have such a clear sense of who they are. And I'm like, well, you clearly don't get this from me. It took me like 40 something years to figure it out, but you guys are bang on. I'm inspired by my kids. I'm inspired by my spouse. I'm inspired by the people that I work with. I meet with a lot of educators, particularly in K-12 public education in the U.S. And I am continuously inspired by teachers and administrators who care so much about raising up this next generation of young people and are doing so often with very limited resources and with often a lot of criticism and challenge from people who aren't providing more resources and aren't offering to contribute to the solution. They just want to point out problems. So I'm continuously inspired by educators. I'm inspired by people who have a vision for what could be, what is not yet, but could be. For example, I had a chance to attend a conference about a week and a half ago that was focused on the next generation of social impact and technology. And I was inspired by the people that I was hearing speak about what they're doing to address climate change, what they're doing to address food insecurity and human rights. So I would say that if we pay attention, inspiration is around us all the time. And it doesn't have to be from people who have TED Talks. I think part of our challenge is that we measure impact in likes and comments and clicks. And that's not really necessarily a measure of impact as much as it is a commercial mechanism now. So I think for me, it's finding inspiration around me every day. And some days I even inspire myself because I did something I didn't think I could do. And it was hard. And I did it. That's amazing. What a wonderful way to end the session. Thank you so, so much, Liz. I read a lot on leadership, but You know, the conversation today was a lesson. I've learned a lot and I'm sure everybody who listens to this episode is going to have that same feeling. So thank you very much for making time for this conversation. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me on. And you inspire me with the people that you continue to bring to Elephant in the Room and the work that you're doing. So I'm grateful for you and I'm I'm inspired by you. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs, and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.